Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues. And I have conversations with foreign policy thought leaders who discuss their life, career, and the big events that shape their worldview. So by now, of course, you are well aware of President Trump's sweeping ban on migrants from seven Muslim-majority countries, the indefinite suspension of refugees from Syria, and the suspension of all refugee resettlement into the United States for at least four months. This Muslim ban slash travel ban, and I sort of use the terms interchangeably, is of course the subject of intense debate and discussion here in the United States. But I wanted to get a sense of how this executive order is playing out in the region. So I called up one of my favorite scholars and public intellectuals who studies the politics of the Middle East, Mark Lynch. Mark describes how different countries are reacting to the executive order and the implications it has for both domestic politics in the Middle East and those countries' foreign policies. This is a useful conversation that puts in context the foreign policy and international relations implications of this executive order. As regular listeners may be aware, Mark Lynch was my guest last summer in episode 114, in which he discussed his newest book about the Middle East, his life and career, and what international relations theory can teach us about rivalries in hip-hop. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out that interview and more from our robust archives. And I should say, if you are a newcomer to the podcast, do go and check out those archives. Most of the episodes with numbers next to them are my interviews, my profiles of individuals in world affairs. And those episodes in general, those conversations, for the most part, are, are fairly evergreen. They can be consumed at any time. They're not really news pegged. So go check those out. And also, if you are so inclined, if you're a regular listener and and come back to the podcast every week, uh, do please consider leaving a review on iTunes. This actually helps the podcast improve in search rankings among people who are looking for smart world affairs podcasts like Global Dispatches. So leaving a review is actually a selfless act. You're helping other people discover this podcast. So thank you in advance for that. And now here is Mark Lynch, who is a professor of political science at George Washington University. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, the seven countries, I think, were chosen based on prior identifications by the Obama administration of countries where there were issues related to uh, to war, sanctions, conflict. Um, so I think that those specific countries are, are not a particular surprise. Um, you know, if you look at Iraq, Syria, Yemen, Libya, I mean, these are these are countries where there's a there's a history. Mm hmm. But like Tunisia, you know, is, is is not on the list. And they're like one of the major exporters of, of ISIS militants around the world these days. 
Well, there's no uh, obvious reason for them in the sense of uh, the U.S. government or the Trump administration took a close look at the sources of terrorism and then identified those countries. Uh, there's a whole bunch of countries missing if that were the case. What I meant is simply that they took a pre-existing list and simply slapped it into this hastily designed executive order. Um, if you were looking for countries where there were seemingly serious risks of uh, the infiltration by Islamic State supporters or al-Qaeda supporters, of course, of course, there's Tunisia, uh, which has pro provided a very large number of foreign fighters. There's Saudi Arabia, which has been another major uh, provider of, of foreign fighters into Syria and elsewhere. Egypt is currently undergoing uh, all kinds of conflict and has a, a long record of, uh, of generating extremist uh, groups. And so, you know, the there's clearly a gap between the potential sources of threat and the uh, and, and the names on that list. Um, but that gets back, I think, to the political motivations rather than the security motivations. Mm -hmm. I think it's pretty clear that uh, the choices were made uh, purely in terms of sending uh, a symbolic message of being tough on terrorism um, rather than taking any serious look at, uh, at what's going on in the region itself mm -hmm. or in, in terms of thinking about how this might actually improve American security. So the executive order was signed on a Friday. On Saturday, uh, it appears that President Trump spoke with um, the leaders in, in both Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Like, what do you think those conversations uh, were about? Well, there is a profound disconnect between the way the Arab leaders are dealing with this and the way most of the Arab public is dealing with it. So from the perspective of uh, most of the leaders of the Arab world right now, uh, including Saudi Arabia, the UAE, Egypt, even Jordan, uh, the, the ban on immigration is not an important issue. They're focused on other things. And so for the Saudis and the Emiratis, their focus during that call apparently was entirely on Iran and on uh, the Muslim Brotherhood and, and fighting against uh, Islamic extremism. And for them, they see the opportunity to get cooperation from the Trump administration on on those issues, along with Syria. And uh, they don't want to muddy the waters by raising concerns about the immigration ban, especially since their own countries are not affected. Even uh, from the perspective of Jordan, uh, King Abdullah uh, is also speaking with um, with uh, the Trump administration. Mm -hmm. um, they're they're worried about the possibility of moving the U.S. embassy to Jerusalem, and they're very concerned about keeping uh, American military and political support. And so mm -hmm. they don't want to mess up what they see as an opportunity for a new relationship with the United States after Obama by raising concerns about the immigration ban right now. And it looks like King Abdullah was, was in Washington, D.C. Uh, just this week, uh, meeting with Vice President Pence, right? Exactly. And so and so what you're seeing kind of across the across the leadership of the Arab world is either ignoring mm -hmm. it or in some cases uh, even defending it. It's interesting. Um, you know, sorry. You know, King Abdullah's cousin is is Zaid Rad al Hussein, who's the uh, former uh, Jordanian ambassador to the U.S. and to the U.N., but currently is the top U.N. human rights official. And he's been very outspoken uh, against the, the, the ban, calling it cruel, 
uh, you know, kind of, you know, being like a, like a progressive voice in the UN system condemning the Muslim ban. But, um, you know, here you have his, his, uh, his former boss and, and, and cousin, you know, not being so outspoken, it seems. Well, I think the, the Arab public, generally speaking, is obviously extremely critical of this. Um, you know, there's a lot of outrage out there. And so the position of King Abdullah, of the, of the Gulf leaders, of, of Egypt's president, I mean, this is a function of this traditional idea uh, going back to before the Arab Spring that the Arab leaders will basically do what they need to do uh, in foreign policy, ignore public opinion, and they're, and, and they're sufficiently powerful at home uh, to get away with it. And so this is really a case where there's a profound disconnect between uh, the leadership position and public opinion. Um, and, and you see this uh, coming out in the media, social media, you know, everybody is just really, really upset by this, these images of, of people being stopped at the airports. And everybody's, re a lot of people are just really uh, confused and uh, uncertain about how this is going to affect them personally, their family, people they care about. Um, and it doesn't help when you have uh, representatives of the administration going on TV and, and just casually mentioning that the ban might be extended to other countries, including Saudi Arabia or Egypt. And uh, there's just a tremendous amount of uncertainty and anger about this, which the Arab leaders are, for the most part, simply ignoring. So, so what do you think the implications are of that disconnect between the, the Arab populace and the Arab leadership? I mean, could we, you know, potentially see like a kind of Arab Spring round two? Well, it really depends on, on how things develop. I mean, most of the Arab leaders feel for the last uh, year or so, they feel like they've got things back under control and they're trying to uh, present an image of stability, of a return to the old status quo. And uh, most of them have got you know, the, the major sources of potential opposition pretty tightly under control. I mean, Egypt still has tens of thousands of political prisoners. The, uh, there's fierce repression of the public sphere, uh, in most Arab countries now. I mean, they feel like, uh, they're, they're back in control, but they have to enforce that with a, a pretty iron fist. Um, so, there's also, you know, pretty profound discontent in most of these countries, especially in a place like Egypt, where you have political repression combined with major economic problems, uh, you know, massive inflation, uh, uh, you know, food shortages, uh, you know, all kinds of, of real problems there. In the Gulf, you've got the collapsing oil prices leading to all kinds of uh, you know, economic changes that are affecting people. And so, you know, there's a lot of Tinder there. Um, I don't think that, you know, the this immigration ban in and of itself is the sort of thing that's going to trigger protests or or any real problems like that. But it's in the combination of all these other things, you know, so if you see the embassy move to Jerusalem, if you see uh, the extension of the travel ban, if you see various kinds of unpopular things being done, it all just builds more and more fuel to the fire. And the more that the governments respond by repressing, the more that it feeds that vicious cycle. Um, on on Egypt, uh, can you talk a little bit about some of the sort of domestic implications in in Egypt, and also uh, implications for U.S. foreign policy about what appear to be kind of closer ties between President Trump and and Al Sisi? Well, the 
at this point, uh, Assisi and Trump get along very, very well. They see the world in very similar yeah, he ways. He was like one of the first uh, foreign leaders to, to, to congratulate Trump, if, if I recall correctly. Absolutely. And, um, and they're, they're absolutely giddy over the idea of an American president who's primarily focused on uh, fighting against Islamic, uh, Islamist groups, who doesn't care about democracy, who is going to basically give them a blank check. They're very excited about that. But, you know, it's really interesting, though, because on the one hand, uh, inside of Egypt, uh, you have, of course, a deeply polarized public and a deeply polarized political situation to begin with. And so when uh, Trump and his administration talk about banning the Muslim Brotherhood or declaring the Muslim Brotherhood a foreign terrorist organization, that's enormously popular with uh, one set of the Egyptian public who, you know, have, are part of this extremely uh, a rigorous propaganda campaign and campaign of repression against the Brotherhood since 2013. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so they're very pleased by that. And of course, uh, the people on the other side, on the on the Islamist side, are, are very upset about it. So mm -hmm. the the idea of a ban on the Muslim mm -hmm. Brotherhood, this was very divisive. But then when you get this idea of a ban on immigration, well, that's the sort of thing which suddenly touches the lives of the uh, of the anti-Islamist Egyptians, the liberals, the cosmopolitans, the ones who are used to being able to travel to the United States. And even though right now they're not being affected, uh, this is something which they can suddenly see could potentially affect mm -hmm. them. Um, can I ask you uh, to, to talk a little bit more about the, the Muslim Brotherhood for listeners who are not sort of familiar with the, the history, the, the context, because it seems that that may be one of kind of the, the uh, down the road, a move that the Trump administration will take, which is to, like to declare, designate the Muslim Brotherhood a, a terrorist organization, which is something that the uh, LCC and, and as you said, like half of Egypt society seems to want. Can you talk just a little bit about what they are, who they are, and what that designation might mean? Sure. So the Muslim Brotherhood is uh, the largest and most important of the uh, mainstream Islamist uh, movements and parties in the Middle East. It has branches in almost every Arab country. And uh, in most of those countries, uh, they're involved in politics. They field, uh, uh, you know, parliamentary candidates and uh, they're involved in public life. And in most countries, they've been uh, they've been illegal or banned, but tolerated and others they're legal. But basically, they've always been a key part of the opposition um, in, in most Arab countries. Uh, after the Arab Spring, they, uh, they, they actually did very well in elections in a number of Arab countries uh, in Egypt, in, in Jordan, in Tunisia, in Morocco. And they kind of were, were moving upwards in, in power and popularity. And this provoked a real backlash. Uh, there was intense polarization. Uh, uh, around the question of Islamism, especially in Egypt and Tunisia, and in 2013, that came to a came to a head with the military coup in Egypt, which uh, removed the elected Muslim Brotherhood president and um, set in motion this uh, really fierce repression against the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt. Uh, the Gulf states, especially uh, Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates, who backed the coup in Egypt, they also uh, back the idea of declaring the Muslim Brotherhood a terrorist organization, mm -hmm. uh, not just in Egypt, but globally. And so they've been pushing hard for that. 
is it, if, if you're sort of dispassionate about this, is it fair to make the argument that they are more a political party and not actually a, a terrorist organization, though? Well, they're not a terrorist organization. I think um, they are a, a conservative Islamist movement that behaves differently in different contexts. And so, for example, in places like Libya, Yemen, and Syria, where there's active wars going on, you'll see Muslim Brotherhood uh, organizations involved in the fighting. Uh, when you have more stable political systems, uh, like Morocco or Jordan or pre-2013 Egypt, uh, then they tend to be political parties and uh, political movements and, and nonviolent. Um, and... But this idea that uh, they're a terrorist organization is really part of the political warfare uh, within within the Middle East as uh, the as their the adversaries of the Brotherhood try and delegitimize it and they try and find reasons to ban them from political life. And um, this has been globalized uh, over the last few years. Uh, so so the, in uh, the United Kingdom uh, uh, last year, two years ago, uh, there was a push led by the UAE and Saudi Arabia to uh, to have the UK designate it as a terrorist organization. This led to a, a, a uh, special commission, parliamentary hearings, and they finally returned the, uh, a conclusion that uh, it was not a terrorist organization, even though there were they had disturb some disturbing ideas and there was uncertainty about their ultimate intentions. Um, it basically uh, said no, it's not a terrorist organization. Now there's been legislation in Congress. Uh, to do the same thing, to require the State Department to uh, to, to report on whether uh, it's a terrorist organization. And that legislation is moving forward. And where the Obama administration would uh, would have opposed it, the Trump administration appears likely to uh, to support it. Um, what that means is unclear because the most likely uh, result of a State Department uh, report would be the same as the British report, which is to say we've investigated it and no, they're not a terrorist organization. But in, in the current environment, who knows? Mm -hmm. So, so you mentioned earlier that that sort of the the, the Gulf states, the one of the, their kind of the key lens through which they view their relations with the U.S. is is in terms of of um, how the U.S. is supporting them or not with their key adversary uh, Iran. Um, on on Iraq, though, um, it, it seems that one of the near term implications of the the travel ban would be a potential reduction in uh, Iraqi support for U.S. military presence in their country. It, it, do you see them as actually going forward with that and and sort of banning Americans from traveling to uh, Iraq? I would say the two places where this has the most uh, immediate and direct fallout are probably uh, Syria and Iraq. Uh, so with Iraq, um, I mean, there, there's really, and I think quite justifiable outrage in Iraq. I mean, they've been fighting this war for, you know, since 2003. Uh, there's a large number of Iraqis who have fought on the side of the United States. Uh, you have translators, you have people working for contractors, you have, um, you know, people who have uh, fought alongside the U.S. and suddenly to have, to, to find themselves banned is a real slap in the face. Now, uh, the the Pentagon uh, reportedly is putting together a list of people who would be expedited and allowed back in. Uh, you know, like you know, like the Iraqi general who's fighting, who's leading the anti-ISIS fight, or you know, government officials, that sort of thing. But 
that that and that would soothe over relations uh, with you know the official level, but it's not going to uh, help at the political level. Where you're seeing quite a bit of uh, of of kind of mobilization and people out there on the streets, you know, kind of raising uh, anger about about the move. Um, so the Iraqi parliament uh, has considered, and I believe just passed, uh, a bill which would uh, which would restrict American entry, but that hasn't been actually adopted as government policy at, at, at this point, and probably won't be because the Iraqis desperately need U.S. help mm-hmm. uh, in, in the fight against ISIS. Um, but but clearly it, it it's had a, a really negative effect on uh, on, on U.S. Iraqi relations and a, a really unnecessary one as well. And and on Syria, what sort of like the immediate effect there? Well, on Syria, there's a couple of issues. One is uh, the the. the the explicit ban on all Syrian refugee uh, immigration is just a real slap in the face. I mean, this is something where there's already been a great deal of hostility to U.S. policy towards Syria, uh, justifiably or not. There, there's just a lot of anger uh, around the Arab world uh, about uh, perceived U.S. inaction on Syria. And uh, to then have the U.S. turn around and explicitly ban all Syrian refugees, it really is seen as a as, as a real slap in the face. Uh, Syria is probably the the most evocative and most potent issue in, in Arab politics right now, and uh, this just really comes across in, in an extraordinarily tone deaf way as uh, as kind of an abandonment of uh, of Syrians who have uh, who suffered uh, during the war. Um, finally, I, I have to imagine that you have a lot of contacts and colleagues uh, who are probably personally affected by this travel ban. Like, what sort of of stories are are you hearing from your your friends and, and colleagues and, and contacts in the region? Well, it's been profoundly disruptive. Uh, so I'm part of a task force for the Middle East Studies Association. We just released a, uh, a statement uh, which really tried to lay out all the different ways in which um, in, in which people are being affected by this uh, by this immigration order. And, uh, you know, if you start thinking it through, uh, the, the effects are really quite dramatic for uh, for especially for my academic colleagues. Uh, you have students who uh, are finding their studies disrupted. Uh, you have students who are students and faculty and researchers currently in the United States who now can't leave for fear of not being let back in. You have uh, people being admitted for study or given fellowship or faculty positions in the U.S. who suddenly don't know if they can come um, in a couple of weeks, we're having uh, the annual conference of the uh, International Studies Association, and uh, there's a very large uh, international component there. And you have people saying, well, am I going to be able to come? Am I, am I going to be able to get in? And there's a tremendous amount of uncertainty there. Uh, and you're having just this really, really disruptive effect. And so you're hearing about people who, you know, they're abroad doing research and suddenly they can't come home and they're separated from their families. They don't know when they'll be able to get in. Um, and so it really has been uh, a highly disruptive in a very cruel and un- mm-hmm. unnecessary way uh, for for this. And and so my, my academic colleagues and friends, it's only a very small slice of this much larger group of, uh, of people who are affected by it. And you're also, it's important to, to note, uh, and you've probably 
seen this as well, is that it's not only hitting the people from those seven countries uh, because there's so much confusion over the enforcement. Uh, I've, we've heard we've had reports of Jordanians being denied entry. We've had a number of, of, of Muslims from other countries not on the list reporting problems with immigration. And uh, so it's dual citizens as well, it seems if, if you're a, a dual citizenship from one of those seven countries and you're like and also Europe, you, you're no longer able to travel to the United States. Exactly. People with dual citizenship, uh, people who have valid green cards. I mean, there's just all kinds of of uneven enforcement and uncertainty. And so so at Mesa, what we're what we wanted to do was just to alert people to what was actually going on and to really push uh, universities uh, in particular to make as many special accommodations as possible. In other words, to try and find ways for people to participate in academic conferences or even in classroom environments. Uh, virtually over Skype um, or to find ways to make sure that people's visas can get extended or whatever's necessary to get through this very turbulent time to protect uh, these uh, these uh, Middle Eastern communities, which are such a vital and important part of our uh, educational landscape. Uh, well, Mark, thank you so much for your time. This was, this was helpful. Well, thanks, Mark. All right. Thank you all for listening. And I should say, I'm actually headed to the region. Uh, next week, I'm going to Dubai for the World Government Summit, which is a conference I attended last year that takes a look at ways governments can operate better in service of their people and also in service of the sustainable development goals. The United Nations has a, a fairly large presence at this uh, event and looking forward to it. Hopefully I'll get some good interviews I can post from the summit and uh, can have that kind of content for you next week. All right, we'll see you later. Bye.